to a cause Good days to you I'll tell Of how the good old union Is coming here to dwell Tell me which side are you on Which side are you on Colleagues and comrades, uh, good evening and welcome to this SCG event on reclaiming our education system. I'm Christine Blow and I'll be chairing this evening and I'm delighted to be doing that because education is a big interest of mine. More than 300 people have signed up to be uh, at this event, so welcome to all of you. Send us solidarity messages as well as telling us where you're from in the Q&A. So let's get on to what we're going to be doing this evening. We've got uh, we've got five speakers. They're all absolutely fantastic, and I'm really looking forward to hearing from them. And after that, we'll take a few uh, questions, as many as we as many as we manage to have time for. So first up is uh, is Daniel Kebedi. He's our first speaker. He's the GS elect of the NEU. He will take office in September, but he's already working really hard for the National uh, Education Union. Members made exactly the right choice when we elected Daniel. It's a pleasure to introduce him this evening and to hear what he's got to say about education and the ongoing struggle. Daniel, the floor is yours. I'm delighted to introduce you. Thank you very much, Christine. And uh, thank you very much for that kind introduction it's uh, really great to be with you all this evening to discuss how how we reclaim education in the interests of our children and our communities look um the conservative legacy must not become a binding force on its successors we simply cannot accept uh, what the conservative government has done as the ground rules for the, the next 10 years of education policy Let's look where we are. We've got funding levels that are lower than 2010. We've got child poverty levels that are much higher. We've got an early years system, which is a patchwork of understaffed private provision and underfunded maintained nurseries whose very existence is in question. We've got a, a worsening crisis of teacher recruitment and retention, a punitive system of accountability, a narrow curriculum shaped by conservative dogmatists and culture warriors. Now, the recent document from Labour's National Policy Forum has begun to engage with some of these issues. It advocates, for example, uh, the rolling out of an ambitious school improvement plan that would see investment in a high quality teaching and support staff workforce to deliver an excellent education for all. The recruitment of thousands of new teachers to fill vacancies and skills gaps, ensuring that teachers are no longer asked to deliver unmanageable workloads. The reform of inspection to ensure Ofsted provides true quality assurance for the government and the public and supports positive, proactive school improvement and an end to the system of headline grades. Now, these are pointers in the right direction but policymakers will really need to grasp the scale of the change that's needed. And I shall try and just unpick some of this. 
We've got the issue of funding, the key question that has united our profession, our families and communities during the current pay dispute and remains a central challenge. In 2022, the government spent just 4.2% of GDP on education compared with 5.6% in 2010, a proportion of GDP significantly lower than comparable high-income countries who spend on average 5% of GDP on education. This has created the reality that our class sizes are at record levels. Primary classes are the highest in Europe and secondary class sizes are the biggest, uh, the highest since records began more than 40 years ago. The scale at which refunding must work won't be covered by the commitments we've heard so far by money saved by ending tax privileges of private schools, for example. We must go much further. The crisis is huge and it is absolutely present in the crisis of recruitment and retention. Our education system is uh, currently enduring. In our last survey of almost 18,000 National Education Union members, we asked teachers and support staff to reflect on their future plans and staffing situation at their workplace. We had 16% of teachers plan to leave the education profession within two years and 41% of teachers responded saying that they plan to be gone within five years. And that was with us excluding the don't know answers. Almost a quarter of support staff respondents, 23%, will no longer be working in education by 2025, and almost half expect to be gone by 2028. Now, last year, ministers missed targets in both primary and secondary recruitment, falling 40% short in the latter. Now, according to the National Foundation for Educational Research, latest recruitment figures for April suggest the government is on course to fall more than 50% short of its secondary teacher trainee target for September. Continuing to miss targets by such a scale will simply lead to the entire system grinding to the halt within this decade. Now, the recruitment and retention crisis is also closely linked to the problems of workload and accountability. The National Foundation for Education Research has spelled this out. Workload is the most cited reason ex-teachers give for leaving teaching. Preparing to meet the demands of Ofsted and to achieve a good profile of results in high stakes testing make work intensity a real problem because it's not just the hours that you put in, but the kind of work that you have to do and whether that work is satisfying or soul, soul destroying. So teacher autonomy is vital for, for most motivation and is linked to job satisfaction and retention. However, many teachers report a lack of influence over key areas of their work. In particular, teachers report a low level of influence over their professional development goals. Yet this is the area with the greatest potential to increase a teacher's job satisfaction. So schools need to not only be funded way beyond current levels, and if they're going to be uh, adequately staffed by well-motivated people, the whole culture needs to change, not in just one or two details, but fundamentally. And that is the real challenge for the next government. Now, education workers are now among some of the best organised trade unionists in the country, 
in the NEU, we have really made things happen on the ground, not just by mobilising our members over pay, but by reaching out to parents and communities over the conditions of our schools. We made a difference in the 2017 election and we can make a difference to the next one. But our members will be all the more willing to mobilise if they see a party which has a realistic sense of the scale of the change that they know is needed. And we really look forward to the big and unequivocal statements that make clear that Labour also has that sense. So thank you very much, Christine. Back to you. Thanks, Daniel. That's really clear. Your, uh, your commitment to education in particular to, uh, to attacking child poverty and making it a thing of the past are really important and clearly finger on the pulse about the important stuff about inspection and workload. So just G up to everybody there who's an NEU member to make sure that you return your ballot form, because if we're going to continue the campaign, we need a really good turnout in this ballot for the re-ballot fraction. So thank you very much. And now we move to our second speaker, who is Janet Farah. She's the uh, she's the UCU president this year uh, and she has a passion for further education. She teaches at Manchester College on the trade union education program. UCU, of course, is the sister union to the NEU. And like the NEU is an active and fighting union. There's such a lot to fight about, I'm sorry to say. But anyway, we're really pleased you're here, Janet, to tell us about the ongoing struggles in UCU. Over to you, Janet. Thank you very much, Christine. Uh, I'm going to try and not repeat a lot of the things that Daniel said because there's just so much parallel um, between um, the struggles in the NEU and, and, and in our union. And just a little, if I can indulge in a, a tiny shout out to my own colleague who are on strike today and have been um, for the last... Uh, what day is it? This is day seven of 12. So, um, yeah, please do send your, your solidarity greetings to Manchester College UCU. So really pleased to be here. Thank you very much for having me. This is a really important conversation, you know, and everybody who is here has got a role to play in shaping this conversation uh, and where where Labour's um, education policy goes when we when we do have a Labour government, which we're all very excited about. So in terms of post-16 education, you know, clearly our post-16 education system um, in England is in crisis, not just in England, actually, but, you know, I'm going to focus on England um, because of over a decade of, of Tory austerity um, and the relentless marketization in higher education and in, in further education, you know, along with huge cuts in investment have led to, you know, HE students graduating with an average of £45,000 worth of debt. £45,000. Um, that's the average. <laughs> you know, that is not a way for a person to start a career. Um, you know, and loans is seems to be the way that it's going in further education as well. That's the only solution that this government has got um, to, to go to loans in FE. Um, and we've had huge cuts in further education. You know, um, we've got a really severe staffing crisis, uh, you know, similar to what Daniel was laying out there. Um, even the Association of Colleges who represent our employers have recently put out um, an article saying how bad the staffing crisis is in FE. Um, you know, it would be quite nice if they'd take some responsibility in terms of uh, in terms of fixing it. But, you know, I, uh, I hold out hope. Um, 
And, you know, there's a worrying imbalance across the whole of the kind of tertiary education sector. We've got these elite um, in heavy inverted commas, higher education institutions, you know, pre-92 universities, hoovering up students um, at the cost of, of colleges and of post-92 universities or the old polytechnics, as some of you might know them. So in, that's the kind of context that we're working in. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about what UCU wants to, to see in terms of building a, a positive education system for the future. And the first thing that I want to focus on is, is, is staff, you know, the most important asset that we've got um, in education. And we really want staff to be at the absolute heart of any policy. Um, we know, and a lot of people on this call will know, that staff working conditions are the same conditions that our students are learning in. And it is vital that we stop treating staff like a disposable asset and you know and recognize them as the the cornerstone of the sectors that that we work in we know that years of underinvestment in uh, in staff has seen pay in fe uh, and in he fall precipitously in real terms you know we've lost around 35% of our pay in fe since 2009 um, and a lot of staff are stuck on this kind of merry-go-round of casual contracts um I made it sound a little bit nicer than it is you know it's <laughs> it's not a game you know some people are um on perpetual casualized contracts and hugely overworked um, chronically overworked and of course these factors combine to make staff feel undervalued you know and resentful and you know ultimately leave the sector in droves you know and that that is again exactly what Daniel was laying out uh, it's a bit of a bleak picture although I'm sure there'll be a positive <laughs> a positive way forward that we could all work on together um so we launched the um UCU launched the Respect FE campaign uh, last year and uh, a charter for professional respect in FE which calls for action to improve pay and to reduce workload because workload really is, you know, the, the thing that our members want to talk to us about. Um, enhanced roles for trade unions and more collaborative approaches and inclusion of staff in strategic decision-making. Newsflash, you know, people who work in education know what they're talking about when it comes to education and we need to listen to them. Um, so in HE as well, in higher education as well, you know, we do continue to, to push for improvements to pay and working conditions. We're in quite a bitter dispute um, at the minute. And, you know, I do hope that you, you will join me in sending solidarity to all the, all the staff in striking colleges, but also our members in universities who are currently engaged in a marking and assessment boycott. Um, and um, obviously they're taking action because, you know, we can't sustain a system where staff are an afterthought in, in policymaking. So that, that's the first area. Um, it's really important when we're looking for a, a positive education system for the future as well, that we recognise that diversity is a strength in lots of ways. You know, successive Tory governments have, have rightly recognised the importance of, of technical education but in a really unhelpful kind of single-minded way, which has led to some very blinkered policy decisions, you know, frankly, a, a whole host of sound bites that just continue to irritate me. Um, plans to defund 
a range of applied general qualifications, you know, have, have rightly seen a major backlash. Um, there was a recent Education Select Committee report which highlighted the plans to cut level three provision like BTEX, you know, and, and the damaging consequences that that would have. Um, and the, you probably or hopefully were aware of the Protect Student Choice campaign that uh, UCU supported, you know, because they did some absolutely brilliant work in delaying these funding cuts. But ultimately, we need a complete reversal uh, of this damaging policy. Um, and meanwhile, in higher education, UCU warnings about the impact of higher tuition fees and unrestricted student recruitment um, on the shape of the sector has, have come to pass with a lot of newer institutions struggling to, to compete, basically, in the scrabble for students um, and, and for their fees. You know, we're back to this, this issue with marketization and the fact that every student's got a, got a value on their head and that's the only thing that, that they're interested in. Um, Post-92 institutions, so the old polytechnic universities, universities have got a vital role, a really vital role to play in widening access to education. Um, but, you know, they're also increasingly exposed through real term drops in tuition fee rates. You know, they're having to drop their fees to, to get the students in. And this kind of aggressive competition between universities that ultimately is, is, is going to be to everybody's detriment. So, you know, without action, both of these issues have potentially devastating consequences for widening participation in, in education, which, you know, we're, we're a huge proponent for. You know, and we need to take on this pervasive narrative that has developed, which suggests that some courses are inherently more valuable than others. Um, and, you know, there have been huge cuts to arts and humanities funding, um, and we've seen a lot of redundancies uh, in our institutions. And, you know, it sends a hugely damaging message about, about the place of these subjects and, you know, the importance of these of these subjects that enrich all of our lives, you know, that culture enriches our lives, it, it just does. So reversing those should be a, a priority for this next government. And then, of course, I've, I've kind of hinted at it, but ultimately we have to stop burdening students with loads of debt. And we, we have to have this policy reversed. It needs to form part of a wider fundamental review of how the education system is financed. And um, the government's recent refusal to exempt colleges from VAT because it would mean less money for the school's budget, you know, an attempt to pit us off against each other is never going to work, by the way, um, despite the, you know, their stated commitment to technical education and its importance. It speaks volumes about this current government's unwillingness to, to put its money where its mouth is, you know, and, and the current system... It, it is broken. It is ultimately broken. It is built on an unsustainable mountain of student debt. We need a bold rethink to ensure that all parts of these sectors are secure for the future and ready to respond to emerging challenges that are facing our society, because that is the role that education has to play. So finally, you know, we need to encourage more collaboration in education. You know, there are, there are really interesting lessons to be learned from reforms that have happened in Wales. Uh, clearly, they're working in a very different political context to, to in England, you know, but they've really kind of sought to embed a more collaborative approach, which recognises that, you know, a, a buzzword that I'm not a massive fan of, but joined up thinking 
um, is key to making sure that all learners, um, all of their needs are met. So in short, you know, we need an education which is accessible, which is ambitious, uh, which is adaptable, and which values all of its stakeholders, including, and most importantly, its staff. Thank you. Janet, thanks, thanks very much indeed, that was great. Um, the, uh, the Protect Student Choice campaign came to Parliament today, and lots of parliamentarians will have had photographs taken that I'm sure they'll be tweeting all over the place. This is a really critical campaign because defunding BTEC is, is a really terrible, terrible plan that this government has had. So let's just all say solidarity to all UCU members taking action everywhere. Send us some, uh, send us some messages um, in the chat. Uh, of solidarity so that Janet can take them uh, back to um, back to her members. And, uh, and don't forget that if you've got any questions for any of our speakers to put them in the Q&A. Okay, so my technical wizard staff have sent me a list of everyone who's told us where, where they're from on this call. So West Wales, West London, Uxbridge and South Ryslip. I wonder whose constituency that is. Brent, Southampton, Chester, Hackney, Leeds, Essex, Hammersmith, Bristol, Sheffield, South London, Kent, Cardiff, and astonishingly, the Philippines and Portugal. Just goes to show what a, right, a wide range we have and how solidarity and the struggle for education is global and international, isn't it? Okay, so we now move on to our third speaker. Our third speaker is James Weising. He is the General Secretary of the Socialist Educational Association, which is the Labour Affiliate Organisation about education, but it is open to people who are not members of Labour. It was formed in, uh, it, was, it, it was given this title in 1959, having been originally founded in the 1920s as the National Association of Labour Teachers. Uh, James uh, is going to join us this evening to talk about the SEA Manifesto, which is absolutely what we believe uh, the, the party should adopt in order to make sure that we've got a proper position on education uh, at the next election. So James, over to you. Thank you very much, Christine. And, and thank you for the Socialist Campaign Group for inviting me. Reclaim Education is such a great title, Reclaiming Education, that suggests that, some, that what we have to do is so radical and so far reaching it's like taking back the service and, and, and Daniel's already outlined a lot of the issues. And so what I'm going to say, what I'm going to uh, start with, what are we actually reclaiming it from? I'm a governor of a, a primary school at the moment. Uh, I have been teaching for a long time and now retired, but um, I interviewed a teacher that is uh, leaving, unfortunately. One of the um, teachers that Daniel referred to, uh, the numbers that are leaving are quite incredible. She is an excellent teacher and is really committed or was really committed. It's what she says. I feel the education system is quite broken. It is very, very pressured on teachers at all levels. I don't feel there is space to just teach and enjoy the job. There is so much scrutiny, whatever level you work at. There is so much pressure to perform, whether it's SATs, whether it's Ofsted. In my role as a mainly year six teacher, a lot of the pressure focuses on SATs. It tells the children that that's all that's important. And that's not the case. They need to have a well-rounded understanding of the world. 
I think it's quite disheartening because if you struggle in school, it should not take from who you are as a person. But our education system is telling children that of having to, that are struggling, that they are not a success, that they are failures. It really narrows their view. From age 10, kids are constantly tested, tested, tested. This will lead to a generational mental health crisis where young people feel there are failures. We want to teach them to be more rounded human beings. We want to be teaching them that who you are fundamentally matters. That is what we are reclaiming our education system from. And what we've done as an association is put together a manifesto, which is a broad vision. It covers everything. It covers everything from higher education down to early years to lifelong learning. And actually, when I was looking at it today before I came on this call, nearly all of it has been done in the past in some form or another. We used to have wonderful adult education where you could turn up and learn how to do flower arranging or learn A-level French, whatever you wanted to do. We had a fantastic old, uh, early years system, I think is probably the one that had the most and needs the most work on, but we've had, um, we had local schools for local children. We had um, a curriculum which was designed mainly by teachers. And these things are happening, well, these are the kind of things we're asking for. And if they're not in the from the past, they're from the future, they're from other jurisdictions where um, the uh, different policies are in place, which enable education to succeed for all children. And I think we can say that we need to be, we need to be really radical. We need to say that this is what we are aiming for. It's not impossible, even though we're told quite often it is. And labor has to tackle this because young teachers like that are going to be leaving, not just for the pay, not just because of the, um, of, the, of the workload, but because of the ideology that this conservative government has put on the system. And that's why I really want to focus on because there's so much uh, other focus, but what is happening is an ideological coup. And this started in 2010, although there were signs of it happening before with the 88 Act and the Black Papers, but Gove's revolution um, has transformed the system in the way that the Tories wanted. So we have no choice but to transform it back or to take it further forward, not just backwards. But we've got a system where teachers used to be practice. They used to choose methods which suits their pupils. They used to choose elements of the curriculum which they felt suited or devised things for their own children. And now we've only got one regime of truth, one fact-based curriculum, one means of assessment, test, 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 one means of organizing schools through multi-academy trusts, and increasingly, believe it or not, only one way of actually teaching. It's really hard to believe that right-wing teaching methodology is being imposed by politicians. Politicians. Nick Gibb is an accountant, and this is what he says. The PISA results from last year serve to confirm the ever-growing body of international evidence on this point. The teacher-led instruction is more effective than child-centered inquiry-based approaches. He is an accountant, he's a politician. He, I mean, how dare he? How dare he tell teachers what is the best and most effective way of teaching for their children? How dare he? And yet this is what's happening. This is what's being implemented 
through the system. He goes on to say that it's his duty as a minister to push this approach. We all know that there's evidence for all kinds of different approaches to teaching and that what professionalism means for teachers is being able to observe that and look at that and work with other teachers and decide themselves what is most effective for their children, not be told by a conservative politician. So what we're witnessing is deprofessionalization. And that is why the graduates, like I'm talking, I spoke to earlier, uh, who was a psychology graduate, actually, the teacher that I'm talking to is leaving education because they're not being treated as professionals. The Russell Group, when they saw what was happening to teacher education, the Russell Group of universities said that it's going to transform teachers into executive technicians, people who deliver but don't critically think. And the latest edition of Forum, the left academic journal, has made a distinction between compliance, which is what the conservative government want from teachers, and critical scrutiny, which is what any graduate, any professional in any role uh, brings to their job. Looking at things, deciding for themselves, and deciding what is best for their children and their learners. So our manifesto contains a series of proposed actions on the curriculum, on assessment, on school structures, on funding mechanisms, on teacher education, because that is massive at the moment, what they've done to doing to teachers' education. And it's only going to put off even more um, recruits from joining if uh, the narrowness of it, memory tests, all that sort of stuff going on in that. For higher and further education, plus accountability, including replacing Ofsted, who are like sitting above the whole system, making sure that teacher educators are doing their thing, making sure that schools are complying to curriculum sequencing, et cetera, et cetera. The whole system has been put together to deliver this ideological agenda. The higher education system, uh, at section, sorry, in our manifesto, demands an end to tuition fees, marketization, and the control by the office for students. What Labour should be doing, and yes, I agree with Daniel, there's some starting points there in the, in, uh, the policy uh, forum um, documents, but they don't go anywhere near far enough. We don't need top-down initiatives. Now, if their initiative about excellence for teachers is about giving them that professionalism back, giving them decision-making back, that's great. But we don't need any more numeracy strategies or literacy strategies. We need to liberate teachers from the yoke of Ofsted, from imposed bureaucracy and the dead hand of multi-academy trusts imposing their corporate way of doing things. The most successful jurisdictions highly respect their teachers and hand over to them and to university education departments responsibility for curriculum development and pedagogy and allow for extensive professional development programs. And that's exactly what Daniel was saying. It will cost more, much more, but we're not going to get those teachers in unless those opportunities are available. And the SEA also contests the mantra coming from the Labour front bench that structures, school structures are irrelevant, that it doesn't matter if it's a Harris Academy or if it's a grammar school. We contest both of those. We are anti-selection and we are anti-academization. Uh, the Tories clearly think that structures are instrumental in achieving their goals. That's why they've set up the system as it is. We need to think that as well. Having liberated teachers, labor should liberate schools. They should be liberating them and handing them back to their communities, 
to parents, to education staff and students, giving them all back a voice in the running of the school, in the running of their schools and the kind of curriculum initiatives they want to see. Again, this is the case in successful jurisdictions, in Canadian provinces, in Finland, and even in the UK, in Scotland and Wales, local communities still retain a voice in their schools. Under the current academized system, where large maps run schools across the country and are often entirely disconnected from local communities, local democratic oversight cannot take place effectively, if at all. So I would say some priorities for labor, we on the left like slogans. Well, we've got to come down to them in the end. Scrap sats, dismantle mats, abolish Ofsted, and let teachers get on with the job and teach. Well, James, that's fantastic. Four really key planks. Let's make sure that the Labour Party both hears that, but thinks about picking up. I think I think liberating teachers from the yoke of Ofsted would be would do so much more for recruitment and retention. That, along with a decent pay rise that we would really be starting in a good place there. Thank you very much uh, for that contribution, James. And now our final two speakers come to us from, from various parts of the Labour Party. So our next speaker is uh, Ian Mearns. He's the chair of the Socialist Campaign Group. He's been an MP since 2010. He's a member of the Education Select Committee and therefore, you know, actually can tell us what's being talked about in the corridors of power. And he's, uh, he's a school governor and he's, uh, he's also chair of the Parliamentary uh, Social Education Association. We're very pleased you can join us, Ian. I hope the vote went well. Thank you very much. The floor is yours. Thank you very much, Christine. Well, as you know, uh, since I got into Parliament in 2010, I've spent 13 years in opposition. And just like most of the others, the vote didn't go well because we're in opposition and we don't win votes an awful lot. We'll come second. <laughs> I'm not really sure, but we, we, we come second. Um, yeah, as you say, Christine, yes, I, I am a school governor. I've been a school governor continuously now for 40 years. And um, I'm still chair of uh, a, a, a primary school in Gateshead called Kelvin Grove, which has two form of entry, um, has 52% of its youngsters in receipt of free school meals. 37 languages are spoken. And it's a very happy and calm environment in which those kids can learn. And I'm very, very proud of that because for an awful lot of those kids, the school becomes an oasis of calm in otherwise chaotic lives. And I think that's vitally important that we can provide an atmosphere like that. So when it comes to reclaiming our education system, well, I haven't seen basically a Tory government over 13 years dismantle everything or just about everything that I'd worked in local government the previous 27 years to try and build, I wouldn't start from here. This is a very, very bad place to start from in terms of reclaiming our education system. We've got a, a situation where we've just been discussing today about special educational needs in the um, Education Select Committee. Um, and special educational needs is an absolute mess and basically the lack of enough professionals in the special educational needs system, professionals like educational psychologists, and then you know, professionals like speech therapists, occupational therapists, you know, appropriate school nursing staff. All of that means that basically what we are dealing with and managing as a nation 
is a rationing system for appropriate special education needs provision for our kids. And along with that, we're also dealing with a, a burgeoning mental health epidemic um, amongst our pupil population. We've gone from a situation where one in nine, which was always far too high, youngsters who had an identifiable mental health problem in 2019 to that is now apparently one in six, where one in six youngsters now have an identifiable mental health problem. And of course, the child and adolescent mental health services out there pro provided by the health service are totally and utterly fractured and inadequate in order to meet that burgeoning need. But also from a, a perspective of just actually running education and how people understand how education works, looking at a, a massively fractured administrative landscape, we still have local authorities and thank goodness that we still did have local authorities during COVID because they rescued many situations uh, mm. in, in schools and in our educational settings uh, during that COVID. The very fact that they were still there and still had some responsibility was vitally important, but that responsibility has been diminishing and they've been defunded by 13 years of a Tory government. Ofsted has been mentioned, um, but dreadfully badly needs reform. I suppose one claim to fame I can actually say had a hand in was that when the current um, Chief, Chief Inspector Amanda Spielman was in front of the committee uh, for a pre-appointment hearing, we recommended back to the DFE that she wasn't fit to appoint, um, but they still appointed her anyway. Um, Ofqual oversees our, um, our exam system. We still have a national and regional schools commissioners. We have various academy trusts. We have diocesan authorities. We still have schools which are maintained directly by the local authorities and voluntary aided schools, grammar schools. Honestly, we've just got a, 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 such a, a daftly diverse system. And I come across as an MP parents all of the time who are finding it increasingly difficult to negotiate the landscape when they hit a problem. They don't know who is responsible and uh, who, to, who, who to talk to. And at the DFE itself, we've had a veritable merry-go-round of ministers and secretaries of state over the last 18 months, but over the last 13 years, you know, they, they, they keep changing. I suppose one of the big problems uh, that we'll have is though that Nick Gibb, the schools minister, keeps coming back, and that's been referred to earlier by James. In schools themselves, with massively increasing spending pressures, but not a huge amount of additional money, some additional money, but nowhere near enough. And and, and ministers are telling telling us that um, the inherent uh, increase in staffing costs have been budgeted for and and are funded. Well, that's not true. Um, uh, along that, along with that, though, energy and food and other costs are going up. Maintenance costs are going up, but energy in particular have been very, very expensive and, and, and expensive for schools. And in order to get round the, the inherent funding crisis and for to keep their promise that um, uh, staffing costs are funded, what the government have actually done, the DfE have done, is altered their guidance to school governors and the school head teachers about how they manage their budgets. So instead of school budgets being 75% for staffing, they're now 82% for staffing. So that's fine. 
you've just got to via money from some other budget heads and move it all into the staffing patch. So that, that element is funded. But what it actually means in real terms that you're spending on everything else in your budget has to be reduced by about 25%. So, you know, it, it's just smoke and mirrors by a, a, dreadful, a dreadful government. And we've got, you know, staff striking to protect their living standards, but also to try and protect the whole idea of state education uh, in, in, in our schools. And the national recruitment and retention crisis, uh, in particular in subjects like maths, where they're just not recruiting enough potential maths teachers for the future, while the Prime Minister at the same time is suggesting that youngsters should actually do maths in, a, in an obligatory way until they're 18. So one, one thing we learned from that is, given the recruitment and retention problems that we're having with maths teachers, is the Prime Minister himself has not done the math in order to actually make that particular um, conundrum uh, have a solution. So. We've also got a, a post-16 skills catastrophe. The, um, the apprenticeship levy led to a, actually a huge reduction in the number of apprenticeship starts. And, and does anyone remember when Damien Haynes and his predecessors were talking about 3 million apprenticeship starts? And then within, uh, you know, within 18 months, found out that they'd very, very quietly just shelved that particular target. But what I also see as a school governor is schools, head teachers and their staff now increasingly picking up the threads where other support services used to intervene and support schools. Children's services where thresholds for intervention carry on to increase and support that continues to decrease. We've seen a youth service which has been eradicated in many places and early years provision underfunded and not frankly good enough for too many if they can find a place. Support services that are a patchwork quilt with varying levels of inadequacy in many, many places. From my perspective, perspective it, it's all very well doing that analysis and there's so much more that, that I, could, I, I could say, but it won't be good enough for us just to say, this is how bad things have become. We've actually got to have some tangible solutions. Um, all of that is as bad, bad as it is. It's good to have a proper understanding of the depth and the breadth of the problems the Labour government will inherit. But that, that has to be followed with firm commitments, a positive policy narrative that is backed with resources to begin to create an education system that is free, comprehensive, accountable, democratic, and importantly, ambitious for our children so they, they, can, they can thrive in, in, in a situation where um, uh, 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 they, they, sh they should be able to sort of map out their, their lives because of the, 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 the quality of the education that is being delivered to them. Education should not be about producing the next generation of units for the labour market, but it should be about the next producing the next generation of well-educated, well-rounded human beings. I, 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 I don't really know what else I can say I entirely endorse, and the campaign group has entirely endorsed um, the, the, the the Socialist Education Association's manifesto. It's a great building block. Um, it's going to take some tough arguing. I'm not absolutely con confident that 
our front bench will come up with the resourcing that is uh, going to be required. But what we do need to do is never give up, keep plugging away and putting pressure on those in potentially in, in, in places of power so that we can actually start to turn this whole juggernaut around. Ian, thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, you know, however, however grim things are, and they certainly are grim, it is great that you're proud of the school of which you're a governor, because, you know, what we all know is that, uh, is that governors and education staff and, and certainly the vast majority of parents and kids do work together to make it work, even against the odds. So imagine how much better it would be if we actually had a properly functioning and fully funded uh, education system. So thanks, thanks very much for all of that, Ian. Now we come to our, our final speaker and our final speaker is uh, Nabir Molana, who is a uh, counsellor in Sheffield. But from, from our point of view, the interesting thing is that she's chair of Young Labour. I read a speech that she'd, uh, that she'd given, uh, I think maybe when she was standing as chair of Young Labour, but anyway, whenever. And she, uh, she concluded with the, wonderful, uh, with the wonderful phrase, we fight for bread, but we fight for roses too. So inspire us, Nabina, with all the things for which we need to fight, some of which are absolutely roses. The floor is yours. Thank you very much, Christine, and thank you for that very kind introduction. Um, hi everyone, it's great to be here with you today, especially following this great lineup of speakers. Um, as Christine mentioned, I have the privilege of being the chair of Young Labour, um, but I'm also a postgraduate student, an education student in particular, at UCL. Now, the student movement has long been the birthplace of bold policies. It has forced us to reckon with issues of our time and tackle them with real solutions. Students demanded for universal health care before the creation of the NHS. They build bridges with their counterparts across Ireland, providing a blueprint for the Good Friday Agreement that would follow 26 years later. And they were the first to pass policy in support of LGBT rights back in 1973. So from vocally opposing the Iraq war to organizing economic boycotts and campaigning against apartheid in South Africa, students haven't shied away from standing up for what they believe in. And on tuition fees, time and time again, students have made it clear they believe in free education. Now it should come as no surprise that when the Labour Party committed itself to abolishing tuition fees in 2017, thousands of students flocked to the Labour Party and some voted Labour for the first time. Students up and down the country door-knocked phone banks and delivered leaflets. And after being let down by the coalition government and the horror of Millbank, it was refreshing to know that a party that could be the next government would be on our side. Now, tuition fees were supposedly introduced to level the playing field. But as our last two manifestos acknowledged, the experiment has failed. Students are no longer seen as learners. They are now consumers to be exploited for increasing profits. A marketized education system affects our quality of teaching, as we heard from Janet earlier. It also affects the treatment of our staff in our institutions and the unbearable costs of rent for poor quality housing. And I think we must acknowledge that free education is about much more than just getting rid of tuition fees. It's about a fundamental rethink of the way we research, the way we teach and the way we utilize education. 
Years after the coalition government tripled tuition fees, the COVID pandemic further politicised students. So many found themselves laid off from their precarious jobs without being eligible for furlough. You know, they were paying rooms for rent, um, they were paying rent rather for rooms they couldn't live in. Um, and some of them were locked in their rooms after being forced back onto campus. Weeks later, A-level students had their results botched by the incompetence of this Tory government, with GCSE students and their results facing the same fate just a week later. Now, all these students will be voters at the next general election. So it's clear that we need to commit to meaningful education reform. And now Labour, crop, uh, Labour clubs across our political spectrum and a majority of the National Committee of Labour Students have invited the Labour leadership to clarify their position on tuition fees. Because it's so important that we don't alienate the next generation of would-be Labour voters. My generation is the first in 100 years to be worse off than our parents. With the poorest graduates leaving university, with an average £57,000 of debt. My own debt is a little over £73,000. Mm. And as this Tory government stands at the edge of collapse, and many students find themselves disillusioned with the state of affairs in Parliament, this is Labour's opportunity to place ourselves firmly as the party with the alternative. We need to show that as a party, we're willing to take the level of action that truly speaks to the scale of issues in our education system. Not just in universities, but in schools, colleges and alternative education providers. We can offer a vision of education that expands our understanding of the world and our capacity to change it. And I think ultimately we can and must respond to despair with socialist solutions be the vehicle for hope, and ultimately secure the confidence of a generation. I'd like to end with sending our solidarity to all those who have been on strike or will be going out on strike with the NEU or UCU. Across the country, young Labour members have been out on picket lines, and for as long as you're on strike, we'll be on those pickets with you. Thank you very much, Nabila. That's exactly what we want to hear from people representing the Labour Party, that where, where, where people have to take strike action, Labour politicians have to be on the picket line. And thank you very much for talking about socialist solutions. Now, we've got a number of questions. Um, they're all, all of these questions are specific to one particular panel member, and then we've got a wrap up question at the end. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna read out what your question is, and then I'm gonna come to you I'm going to read them all out and then I'm going to come to you to answer it so you get a bit of thinking time. So, um, Daniel, this is a question to you from Julie. Um, how do we get uh, how do we get any sense of democratic accountability into multi academy trusts? And she says, where do local authorities fit into any new system that we're imagining from Labour? OK, for Janet. Uh, Christine from Essex says, how do we get adult education doing what it should, what it should do and what it used to do? And Rupert adds in, in shaping new Labour policy, would you look to reverse the axing of BTEX and how should Labour shape the post-16 curriculum? These are all, by the way, very long questions with potentially very long answers. Um, for James, Dave says, 
what do people so I guess he means the people you talk to James think about the increasing commodification of education and the loss of academic tenure sweeping towards us across the Atlantic uh, for Ian Esther from Waltham Forest talks about the um, the SEND crisis in East London. She says there's a two billion pound uh, special educational needs funding shortfall annually in England and Wales. This is resulting in some people who are falling out of the system, as I think you already said, Ian, and so you clearly know. How do we get this this issue up the political agenda and stop people treating it as a niche concern? And finally, Nabila, for you, George says, as a post-2012 intake student, I definitely feel the mountain of debt. I can't believe you've got £73,000 worth of debt, Nabila. That's horrendous. One of the justifications and explanations was it allowed mass expansion of, uh, of education under new labour. So his question is, how, do we abolish tuition, how can we abolish tuition fees without having to reduce access to higher education there you are that's the uh not quite the holy grail there are places that do it anyway so uh, i'm going to come back to you in the order that you spoke in the first place and then i'm going to reverse the order for the last question okay so daniel democratic accountability in uh, in multi-academy trusts and what should local authorities do in a new system that's a very 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 good question i mean ultimately to have democratic accountability in terms of maps we need uh, a, a change in legislation uh, a, a, around a, around that fundamentally i mean the the whole the whole uh, reason for academization it was brought through to to provide that local choice and uh, accountability in 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 that sense and it's completely flawed in fact what we're seeing now is um uh, quite, quite shocking in areas where, you know, we're seeing uh, falling pupil roles like in London, uh, we are now seeing uh, those, uh, those, those buildings and properties that were once under control of a local authority, um, you know, being uh, turned into flats and, and sold off for huge, huge profits, uh, which is uh, issue. I mean, I suppose what we we absolutely need to do is strengthen uh, campaign groups like Anti Academies Alliance and build uh, that grassroots and and, and certainly uh, organise parents around uh, accountability to multi academy trusts as well. I mean, the LA system. I mean, fundamentally, what we would like to see is a renationalisation of education. Um, that is at the core of it. Um, you know, whether that will happen anytime soon is a, another question, but the LA system, you know, really needs to be uh, brought back to, to, to provide uh, those you, the, those things that Ian was talking about in his, his, his speech, you know, everything that was provided through COVID, local authorities were absolutely vitally for, vital for. Uh, but there's been so, so many services that have been stripped back uh, in in terms of what LA's provide and, and in terms of education. And we, we need to see those very much come back, whether it's, you know, special needs for uh, support around gypsy, Roman traveller education uh, and, and so on. And, but fundamentally, we need a, a legislation change, and that will only come through 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 bottom up uh, through a bottom up process. Thanks, Daniel. I ju I just add that actually, even even the people who were originally in favour of multi academy trusts 
many of them feel that this notion that you can have a trust that runs from Liverpool to Plymouth is just nonsensical. Yeah. So, you know, the very least thing that we could be asking the Labour Party to do is break up multi-academy trust so they have some geographical coherence and can actually relate to a local authority. So, yeah, there are things that can be done, but it's uh, it's a big task. OK, so, Janet, uh, let's think about how we can get edu- adult education back, but also about what might the post-16 curriculum or up to 16 curriculum look like with um uh, what could what should labor be doing about that yeah again really good questions i mean on adult education you know kind of doing what it should do i mean james james covered it really well you know i'm a huge proponent of learning for learning's sake you know the joy of learning being able to learn a new skill you know being able to go to an adult um community center uh, you know, my other half actually at the minute is doing a, a sewing course, you know, at Berry Community College, you know, that's, he doesn't want to go into a job in sewing, but, you know, he wants <laughs> to learn a new skill, like, so, uh, and we like that he's subverting gender stereotypes, of course, as well, um, you know, but um, it is so important, adult education, you know, I used to teach um, GCSE English to access students, so adults who haven't had a, a kind of standard route through education for lots of different reasons you know there were two women who stand out um, from that class who were both nurses in Sierra Leone you know and they'd had a hugely traumatic history and then they wanted to go to university in the UK and and access through further education through adult education was their their route into that you know so we can't really underestimate the, the the transformative power uh, of adult education and and how important it is for communities. Of course, it needs proper funding. That that is ultimately what what it needs. You know, our members who work in adult education are amongst the lowest paid teachers uh, in the whole of the education sector. Um, not to mention prison education, which of course, Christine, you've been an absolutely brilliant proponent for. Um, and the the other huge issue in adult education is is casualization. There's just so many teachers um, on precarious contracts having to travel from site to site sometimes really long distances you know keeping all of their resources in the boot of their car um, not having a proper desk you know not having a laptop you know some of the kind of fundamental things that they need to be able to do their job and as I mentioned earlier you know we need the 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 cuts to level three provision to be to be reversed or not to go through in the first place there are also huge issues with devolved funding that we're facing in trade union studies, you know, now that the union learning fund has gone, which is a real massive loss in terms of basic skills for adults. Um, and, you know, we face really unnecessary bureaucratic barriers in terms of postcodes and that kind of thing. So there are a number of really kind of straightforward things that could be fixed um, that, that would at least increase that access to provision. Um, and, you know, and on BTEX and, and the kind of choice and, and where, where that will go, obviously, I, again, I did mention that in, in my speech. I just think choice is just so vital for students. You know, everyone has got a different set of skill sets. The Tories think that working class kids shouldn't do academic subjects. You know, they've got no interest in, in the working class studying A-levels, for example. You know, I did A-levels at an FE college uh, against the odds. Um, and then, you know, went on to a Russell Group University. You don't have to be 
um, pigeonholed as a working class student, you know, and I think there's a lot of that that goes on. The point is, it's horses for courses, you know, people want to do different things. They've got different skill sets. They should have the choice, you know, and um, the idea that BTEC should be removed from the curriculum is a real attack um, on, on working class education, in, in my view. Janet, thanks very much. I mean, I think I think a commitment to reverse any any BTECs that do get defunded should be a should be a big commitment, really, for the for the Labour Party. Because after all, you know, you can access university by going through the BTEC route as well. So it's not as though it's even you know, it's it's they're great courses on their own, but they also can be a stepping stone to something else. Okay, James. So what do people think about commodification? And what about the loss of academic tenure, by which I guess um, I guess Dave means both in higher education and further education. But frankly, you know, when I started teaching in 1973, people got permanent contracts. Now they don't, you know, so there are big issues here. Over to you. Yeah, I mean, the first thing about, uh, I mean, this is a quote from uh, Michael Rosen, actually, but I might well have heard it. It's, it said, first they said they needed data about the children to find out what they're learning. Then they said they needed data about the children to make sure they're learning. Then the children only learned what could be turned into data. And then the children became data. So we've got um, a kind of, we have got a kind of neoliberal uh, system in which children are reduced and educational um, success is reduced to a commodity and children are reduced to commodities through, uh, and in fact, that teacher, that quote at the beginning was, um, and, and another teacher I spoke to said exactly that, that the child becomes a number that you've either got to move in one direction or another to get your, to, to meet your targets or to get your, uh, to make sure your school maintains its position in, in, in the performance tables. So we're seeing uh, education commodified uh, a, a, across the system. And we're seeing inbuilt failure, which I think, um, as, as James was saying, is deliberate. I mean, there is uh, a rationing of grades so that only certain numbers of uh, kids pass uh, GCSEs, for example. There's always about 37, 38% who don't get the top grades. Nearly all of them are disadvantaged. When you in the inverted commas, when you get to A level, you've got a, a sense of the most disadvantaged kids being the not just A level but FE uh, in BTEC and those courses, but A level grades equi equivalent. They're four grades behind uh, the non-disadvantaged. So that's how our our system is leveling up. It's not. It's leveling down effectively. Um, so um, moving on to um, yeah to casualization and tenure. Um, it's a terrible kind of wedge, isn't it? It starts with a kind of thin end of using um, temporary staff to cover for, 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 for absences and short, and using agencies to cut, which are a total ripoff, by the way. I mean, I think we could, Labour could probably fund the education system with the profits that recruitment agencies make. Um, it, it starts with that thin end of the wedge and then it leads to one year temporary contracts followed by uh, particularly I know, and I don't know as much about FE and HE as some colleagues the SAA do, but um, there it's become clear that um, casualization has become a major, major part of, uh, of, of university and FE college life now, and it needs to be reversed. 
And I think it's 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 the nature partly of the marketization and of the funding regimes and of colleges and universities never being sure about, you know, how many people are going to come through the door and how much money they're going to have. So they're always backing uh, backing the, uh, you know, the worst case scenario. So putting people on temporary contracts. So I think one of the, the things that needs to happen is we need to change funding mechanisms away from the insistence that everything has to be done on numbers. If every, uh, and this applies to schools as well, um, numbers may be a small part of it because obviously if you suddenly have a certain increase, you need increases in funding, but schools should be funded per se. They shouldn't be funded down to the last child. Without what that creates is, is the um, lack of tenure and the kind of temporary contract uh, hell that some people have to go through. Thanks. Okay, thanks very much for all of that, James. And now I'm coming to you, Ian. <clears throat> um, uh, so Esther had all the background on uh, special educational needs funding, but essentially her question is, how do we get this issue uh, up the political agenda and to stop people to stop treating it as a, as a niche concern? Uh, you know, special educational needs funding and disability funding is for it's for everybody. It's for schools to make sure that they can respond to the needs that any children present with. So what should we do about it? Well, I think you're entirely right. And I, and I think, I think it's, it, it's, a, it's an important question. I, I think it is moving up the agenda, but possibly not rapidly enough. Or, 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 you know, um, but I think special educational needs funding has been moving up the agenda for, for a while. And I think Esther, in our question, said that, that the, the send block is underfunded by about two billion. I, I think I think Esther's about two billion short of that. Actually, I think it's about four billion. Um, right. the, the, in 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 real terms, we've got increasing numbers of youngsters now. It's about four percent across the whole of the country who've now got an education, health, and care plan. What we used to call a statement of special educational needs, and about another fifteen or sixteen percent of young youngsters who are non-statemented but have special educational needs of one way, shape or form. So, you know, that's that's an awful lot of parents out there who are being, um, and their children let down because of the inadequacies of the system currently. And, uh, you know, uh, there's a huge amount of lobbying going on by, um, you know, particular uh, specialist groups in, 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 the, in the voluntary sector to do with youngsters with special educational needs you know, youngsters with autism or hearing or, or, or visual disabilities. Uh, you know, it, it's it, it, there's, there's just a plethora of, of, of lobbying groups out there. So I, I think it can move up the the, 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 the um, up the agenda, but it's quite clear that it, it's massively under-resourced. And I'm, and I'm afraid to say the lack of resourcing, and I'll re re reiterate what I said before, is just used as a rationing system so that an awful lot of youngsters with um, special education needs are, are tr trying to be coped with in the, in the mainstream system currently, what, waiting an assessment which for many of them might never come. Uh, it's, it, 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 is, it is frankly, uh, frankly dreadful. Um, but but I, I, I really I do think that it, we kind of need a root and branch reform of provision for special educational needs. I mean, we had Claire Coutinho, the, 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 the minister in front of the committee 
this morning and she was talking about oh, well, we're building 90 schools when I said well have you done a scoping exercise to make sure that they're for the right specialisms and being put in the right place and they just hadn't done it they just hadn't done that scoping exercise and let's not forget by the way there are 150 top tier um, local authority areas so they're building 90 special schools in 150 top tier local authorities and we don't have a map of what those specialist schools are meant to be um, uh, uh, coping with in term, terms of the youngsters. It's, a, it's frankly a mess. And I wouldn't mind betting that the distribution of those new 90 schools has probably been done on the basis of pork barrel politics by the Tories, because that's what they've done with everything, um, everything else. C can I also just make a quick comment on what J James was talking about in terms of academies and marketization? Let's never forget, by the way, that academies were introduced to the English system by the Labour government until 2010. You know, it, it was a small number, and it was about the, the reason that they introduced it was about turning around failing schools. But never forget, by the way, that they were based on the charter school model in the United States of America. And of course, the most successful state in America um, for educational outcomes for its children is Massachusetts. And Massachusetts has got an upper limit on the number of charter schools that it will allow in its own state system, no more than 8%. And yet the government here have gone for an entirely wall-to-wall -wall, uh, academy program. And of course, the states in America, like Louisiana, which did go for a wall-to-wall -wall charter school program, were still at the bottom of the educational leagues. Very good, uh, very good international comment there. Thank you very much, Ian. That's uh, very good to finish on that. Uh, okay, so we come to your question, Nabila. Okay, so you've just got to tell us now, uh, if we abolish tuition fees, how can we do that without reducing access to, uh, to higher education to, uh, George says, maybe down to 10% or the select few? But while you're thinking of your answer to that, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to come back, I'm going to come to you first, for this second round and final question, which gives you the opportunity, please, to say what one specific promise you would like to see in the Labour Party manifesto. So answer George's question, make a couple of remarks if you want to, but give us one specific idea. And then I'm going to go back through the uh, through the speakers and ask, ask you to tell us what the one specific promise is. Over to you, Nabila. Lovely. Thank you, Christine. Um, and thank you for the question, George. Um, so I think in short, I absolutely think we can abolish tuition fees without reducing access. And it's almost two, two ways to look at this. Um, I mean, the first is having tuition fees hasn't necessarily leveled our access to higher education or our outcomes from it. You know, we know students of colour, disabled students, working class students, they do have a much harder time getting into university. And when they finally manage to get in, sort out their massive housing deposit and get themselves onto campus, they then face a whole host of other access issues once they're there. And, you know, we could probably have um, a much longer session on the degree awarding gap alone. Um, but on the matter of like investing in education, I think investing in education is a matter of priorities, right? Um, and it's only when we ask for things like better wages or housing, healthcare, education, that's when we're told there's no money or not enough money. Um, I think it's really important that we actually start to push back against this narrative. Um, like, for instance, we're currently living through a climate crisis. And as a country, if we want to properly respond to this crisis, 
if we want to support innovation, boost the economy, create a better rounded society, um, and all the other things we want to do as a Labour government, then I think funding education is absolutely fundamental to this. Um, so for my one promise in the Labour manifesto, oh, you really put me on the spot there, Christian, I have a long, long wish list. Um, but I, I think just committing to whole scale reform of our education system and completely demarketizing it um, right across the sector would be my would be my big wish. Demarketization. Great. OK, thanks very much, Nabila. I'm coming back to you, Ian, now. One one big wish for uh, for something that you would like Labour to absolutely promise in their election manifesto, in our election manifesto. Right. Well, the one I would go for is um, a completely redrafting of the curriculum so that the curriculum would be appropriate to the needs of all young people, not just the ones who are destined to go to university. So, you know, the, uh, far too many youngsters in our schools are turned off because they're not academic in, 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 the, in the way in which we would normally under, understand that. And therefore a properly comprehensive and inclusive curriculum, uh, which helps every young person um, achieve their own individual goals and fulfill their own potential. Great, yeah. Curriculum review is one of my favourites too. Okay, I'm going to come to you now, James. Thank you. Yeah, I'm going to go for something that probably won't be in it because um, I, I think there will be, yeah. Hopefully, the career. I think there've already been little signals that the curriculum might be up for revision, which is great. Now, I'm going to go for um, democratic accountability of of schools. Um, and uh, bringing schools back under local democratic control. I don't just want to go back to local authority control. Uh, I think we've got to have a much wider, far more democratic approach than that. It's got, uh, we're not just going to go backwards. We need parents' forums, teachers' forums. We need pupils' and learners' forums. Oh, sorry. We, um, we need um, of giving, we're not just giving schools back to local communities. We're giving school, uh, local communities a voice in the education of their children. And I think that is crucial. And I think it's a vote winner, actually. Um, but I doubt it'll be in there. <laughs> Great, though. Good idea, though, James. Thank you very much. OK, Janet, your, your one big wish for a promise in the Labour Party manifesto. Yeah, it's tough, this, isn't it? It's like daddy or chips. Um, I would say that, uh, you know, a commitment to proper funding uh, across education, but, you know, if I'm talking from my members' point of view, you know, across the FE sector, so FE, prison and adult education, you know, a commitment to proper funding, because ultimately those sectors are not going to survive without it. So that would be a really good starting point. That's great, Janet. Thank you. And right, Daniel, for you to round up one big wish for a promise from the Labour Party. Oh, there's so many things that need changing in education. Christine, I wish Labour, uh, any political party, 
particularly Labour, is they're likely to be the next government would commit to a Finnish style uh, system of education for our children, where they start education uh, much later in life. You know, academic learning doesn't start until seven. Early years education subsidised and it's play based. There's no privatisation. There's no marketisation. There's no uh, league tables. It's a fully comprehensive system with class sizes on average uh, of 19. Uh, teachers are well paid, they are respected, they have professional control and autonomy over what they teach and how they teach. So uh, I would like to see uh, a radical uh, education act that brought around a system like that. But if not, uh, some real work done on the recruitment and retention crisis uh, that is uh, un unravelling in education. It can't go on. We're on the brink of the whole system grinding to a halt. Uh, so we need to have uh, a real wage rise, manageable workloads and uh, some more professional control. That's great, Daniel. So, so either we want to turn ourselves into Finland or at the very least, we want a fully funded proper education service and as James said, with democratic accountability and all of the other really important ideas that came up in that last round of questions. That's it, comrades. Thank you very much for your participation. Um, may I just say on behalf of everyone who, who tuned in, thank you very much to our speakers. And can I say on behalf of our speakers, thank you very much for all of you for watching and listening and participating. Because if you hadn't been there, we'd have been talking to ourselves, which is not really a good idea. So. Let's, uh, let's make sure that we take away from this meeting that education with the right policies is a really big vote winner for the Labour Party. So let's make sure that we're pressing in all levels and all sections of the Labour Party for the kind of policies that we've been talking about this evening so that we really can reclaim our education system. Thanks very much, comrades. Solidarity.